Hi, listener. Thanks for tuning in to The Value of Leadership, a podcast where we connect with fellows in the Aspen Global Leadership Network, leaders from around the world as they get vulnerable, share lessons learned, mistakes made, and how the values they've honed in on are expressed in their actions. On August 4th of this year, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded in a warehouse in Beirut, Lebanon, wiping out almost the entire city. 300,000 people lost their homes. The explosion not only caused immediate devastation, but amplified the tensions and frustrations of a population too familiar with the call to be resilient, to rebuild, and to start again. This tragedy is the latest challenge to a country that has faced its fair share, including political and economic turmoil, massive unemployment, and extreme poverty. And then a global pandemic hit. In the wake of these compounding crises, some have suggested it's time to rethink the country's social contract altogether, to challenge the very foundations of society, to think about not only the rights, but the responsibilities each citizen has as Lebanon picks itself back up from the rubble. Two months after this explosion, we spoke with AGLN fellows in Lebanon, all civil society and business leaders, to talk about their unique roles as their country continues to face seemingly intractable challenges. This conversation is moderated by Aspen Institute moderator and Henry Crown Fellow, Stace Lindsay, and took place in partnership with the Middle East Leadership Initiative and Resnick Aspen Action Forum. It's our privilege today to have four remarkable Lebanese fellows join us for a discussion about this. In the honor of the spirit of Aspen, I'm gonna introduce these fellows not with their bios and tremendous accomplishments that you can find on their CVs, but just as close personal friends, fellows in this network who are doing their part, leading remarkable lives, trying to do remarkable things in a country that is facing such challenges, finding themselves stepping up and finding the courage to ask of themselves and I hope of us, the hard questions. So today, it's my pleasure to introduce to you four remarkable fellows from the Middle East Leadership Initiative. Shadia Elmeuchi Naum, who is one of the moderators with me for the Middle East Leadership Initiative and a dear friend. Ramez Shahadi, calling in this morning from Dubai, also a moderator with the Middle East Leadership Initiative and a dear friend. Walid Malouf, a member of the first class of Middle East Leadership Fellows, calling in from Beirut, and Rima Maktabi, a member of the most recent class of Middle East Leadership Fellows, calling in from London. I've asked each of them to share for a few minutes their own reflections on how the explosion has affected them and what lessons they're taking away from that. So let us begin first with you, Shadia. When, uh, when the blast exploded, I have... Uh... I have, I have pictures in my mind that are still haunting me till today. After being uh, catapulted three to four meters and slamming into a cupboard and landing on the, on the ground, surrounded by glass and cupboards and doors and broken paintings, I looked for my uh, daughters. I found the first one standing in a doorway and the second one naked in her shower, speechless, she wasn't speaking. I then uh, looked for my husband. And the image that I can't shut out and that has caused me to think a lot was I was kneeling down and uh, he, was, he had uh, passed out and, and his head was hemorrhaging and he had a, a, a hole in his head like a cranial fracture. And uh, so I had his head on my knees and uh, there was blood everywhere and I was looking around 
and uh, the house was destroyed, my children upstairs, everybody was screaming. And I remember for a second thinking, how the hell did I ever end up here in that situation, on my knees, wondering whether he was going to actually pass away or whether I was going to be able to take him to a hospital. And I remember in that, that moment where I thought that, I have been reliving it and rethinking about it in the nearly close to two months that have passed. And I really wondered how a person who is educated, a person who's relatively successful, a person who runs a business and does relatively well, a person who's involved in civil society, how do you end up in that situation? And that question has haunted me and I realized how responsible I was because in, in, in many ways I was living in a cocoon. I thought that if I run my business, if I give back to my community through civil society, then government is just a parallel thing that is just there in my country. I can't control it. I can't do anything about it. And I can just live alongside it. Well, the reality is I paid a heavy price for me, for my family, for my community, because you can't live a successful life, I believe, in a society where your government is not a worthy one and is not an accountable one. And until this day, I feel very responsible that I didn't run my role as a, as a leader in society in the same way that I run my role as a leader in business, holding the leaders accountable, stepping up, speaking up, and doing what is necessary to make a difference and to not accept. And as I thought about this more, what made me not accept and not do anything about it? And I think resilience had a lot to play with it. I've been thinking so much about resilience because we grew up as Lebanese being proud of our resilience. Well, the truth is this resilience somehow made me more functional than emotional. This resilience made me accept the unjust, accept a lot of things that I shouldn't have accepted. And I think that is a failure in, in my leadership. And I'm living with that and struggling with that every day. On the positive side, I think another image has very, been very powerful in my mind, which is the collaboration that we were met with has been astounding. I went into the car of a complete stranger. Uh, I saw people who were wounded themselves carrying wounded people in the streets. In the hospital, I saw doctors, nurses. I saw a level of collaboration that I cannot explain from the local community, but I also saw an amazing level of collaboration from the international community. And in my personal rebuilding, because I was shattered by this event and by all the ones preceding it, the support of the network, the support of my friends, the support of the international community who helped Lebanon without having any links to Lebanon, really showing that there is no other, that we are all one. I think this was extremely powerful to me and has been an important lesson because while you cannot count on your government, we have been able to count on the community in an unbelievable way. Thank you, Shadi, and thank you for sharing the story of your husband. Ramis. You know, as we watch the media and listen to the news, increasingly it feels like it's not just a Lebanese predicament. This question of the social contract, the US, the UK, Israel, every geography seems to be questioning um, the role of government, the citizen, the resident, the community leader, the business leader. And there's certainly many parallels that I think we can draw from each other along this journey. 
The explosion shattered me, as it clearly did the lives of many, many other people, uh, and as it clearly did the integrity of so many of the buildings and the structures in Beirut. I was very close. I was less than a kilometer away. I was sitting outside in a cafe looking at the port, in fact, looking at the grain silos when the explosion uh, went off. And while it blew us across the terrace uh, and it showered down glass on us, somehow I, I survived without any physical injury, while many around us, many around me did not. Uh, people inside the building adjacent to the terrace had passed. Family did not. My mother was injured. My wife's aunt spent weeks in ICU and an uncle passed the day after. And so began a PTSD-induced negative spiral, which was then further exacerbated by this breakdown in the social contract. Political inaction, cronyism of community leaders, persistent populist fractures in the face, and as a result of so much of this political inefficiency and political and economic collapse. And of course, exacerbated by my growing anxiousness to protect and guide my loved ones amidst all of this. It was debilitating. I've never felt anything like this and I would never wish anyone to experience it. I couldn't sleep. I, I kept seeing images similarly to what Shadia described. But I found a way through it, luckily. I spoke to a dear friend who's a clinical psychologist at the NHS, uh, uh, who's specialized in PTSD. And she helped me recognize what I was going through uh, and what I was experiencing. And in turn, to start sort of climbing out of the hole that I was sinking into deeper and deeper. And the formula seemed surprisingly simple because my question was, well, you know, what's the recipe? What do I have to do? And, and she said, basically, Adam, is you just need to rest and you need to vent. Spare no opportunity to talk about your experience. Don't bottle it up. You bottle it up and it makes things worse over time. And so I began a process of resting uh, and of venting. And it reminded me of a great quote by none other than Mark Twain. When a razor has long seen service, and refuses to hold an edge, the barber lays it away for a few weeks, and the edge comes back of its own accord. We bestow thoughtful care upon inanimate objects, but none upon ourselves. What a robust people, what a nation of thinkers we might be if we would only lay ourselves on the shelf occasionally and renew our edges. And so I attempted to renew my edge, and I've chosen to move my family and myself to Dubai. And while I take a break from Lebanon, I'm not giving Lebanon a break from me. I've found catharsis, as has my family, found catharsis in helping others through channels available to, to me personally, to me professionally, to us as a family, from cleaning homes when we were in Lebanon and sweeping streets and fixing schools and my focus today is on small and medium uh, businesses in the context of Lebanon. And history has shown us repeatedly that politics and economics are inversely correlated. 
If we can empower and enable businesses to survive and thrive and in turn preserve and create jobs, then we as leaders, or people that can, if you will, start to chip away at the prevailing feudal value proposition that has plagued Lebanon. We create a disincentive for it. It starts to reverse the notion that it's difficult for a person to understand something if their livelihood requires them to not understand it. The key ingredients include a roof over the head, food in the belly, a positive sense of future through job stability. We can build a good society in Lebanon, strengthen the economy, and in turn, reduce the politicization of nearly everything. I remain hopeful. Thank you very much, Ramaz. Walid, share with us your experience. Um, I'd like to start by giving you a little uh, background of my relationship with Lebanon. I'm Lebanese, of course. Uh, like Shadia, there are some images that will never, ever leave me. The 32 seconds you mentioned, I was lucky to be at home, which is pretty close, not one kilometer, but in Ashrafiyya, which is quite close, not far from Shadia's place, with my wife and four-year-old daughter. And the earth started shaking, literally. And what I only remember is holding my four-year-old uh, and looking her in the eye and smiling so she doesn't freak out and be totally scared. So everything got blown up, the facade of the house, glass everywhere, furniture everywhere. And all my focus was on her looking her in the eye while she was shouting, crying, and asking me questions, you know, why do you have blood on your face? What is this? Why is it? What is this? Etc. Etc. This has shaken me to the core, as as I would believe everyone. And we survived. My uncle didn't survive. He's a doctor who who was blown in his clinic. His son, who was also a doctor, was in ICU for weeks on weeks. So, like many stories, we were shaken to the core by this horrific, uh, horrific. Event. What I'd like to, to say and to share is talking about this sense and perception of risk. You know, ever since we were kids, you know, we went out in Beirut when things were, where things were not well. You know, as Shadia was saying, uh, we got used to horrific things and we called it resilience. We went out to pubs, we went out to ski, while in other parts of Beirut, there were people dying. And this is not normal, but we normalized it, right? Uh, and we called it resilience. We called it the faculty of adaptation. But that, at the end of the day, shows that we created this bubble and we lived with it. The learning is basically beyond uh, personal in any business, I think. When you're too comfortable, when you, know, you don't see anymore, you're blind because you're engaged, you need to take a step back. We didn't take a step back in Beirut. We normalized everything. And although I was and I am engaged in civic engagement through my work at the Lebanese Food Bank, more political engagement is needed. I mean, yes, you can stitch and you can help people to survive, but you need to be politically engaged. And the mere fact of going to vote is the minimum basis of political engagement. So this is my learning. You know, whenever you're too comfortable, don't be blind. Don't take everything at face value and really engage in participating in your civic duty and go and cast your vote and, and have your voice heard. 
Thank you very much, Waleed. Rima, can you share your experience as well, please? The first moment of August 4th, I was visiting Lebanon just to check on my mother and the explosion happened. I happened to be in West Beirut. And the explosion, the minute it happened, I reported to the head office to Al Arabiya and I was on air, ignoring all calls from my family and from my husband to see if I'm alive or not. I thought they switch on the TV and they see me and they know that I'm okay. And I kept reporting on the explosion from Manara, seeing the devastation and, and I'm just telling them about my experience with explosions, that this was not a normal explosion. I had covered Syria, I had covered Iraq and the war in Lebanon and the Arab Spring and there was nothing like this that I've seen. And then the moment I, I, I arrived home, I, I realized as I'm walking towards my home and I'm live on air over the phone that this explosion has hit me. It has hit my family. I, I, I realized I didn't check on my brother and my mother. And then I arrive and I see them on the streets. My mom, a little bit injured in her feet, but I didn't realize what's happened. And then suddenly when I went up home, I, I found my whole flat destroyed. And I then understood that a huge, huge door fell on my mother and she might have some complications and my uncle and his wife were there. And then we went to my aunt and then we started thinking where to take mom to a hospital because I called my friends that, who are doctors. They said, don't come close to any hospital if she's not really badly injured. This explosion suddenly became about me, about my family. The minute I saw my, my family on the streets and, and my home in ruins, I stopped being the journalist and I became the Lebanese who's lived this again and again and again and again. I lost my father, I was two years old. My mom was 20 when she was a widow with three kids, no money, no job. And this is what Lebanese say, resilience. We can build again. We are alive. Thank God you're alive. Yeah, thank God you're alive. The famous saying of ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I have carried Lebanon with me all over wherever I went. I, I, I had a home in Lebanon because I believe in Lebanon. I kept my lifetime savings in Lebanon because I wanted to contribute to, contribute to the economy of Lebanon. I've always dreamt of coming back. Wherever I went all over the world, if I succeeded in anything, I'm the Lebanese who succeeded in something. This explosion has changed me forever. I couldn't cry. The next day I went to my flat. I checked on mom that she's okay and that there's no internal hemorrhage anywhere. And I started rebuilding, but something is broken forever because I blame myself. I blame myself on my dreams that I dreamt that big in a country that Lebanon, that I learned nothing from my childhood in bunkers and as an orphan. And I blame myself for allowing this to happen in Lebanon. We are part of this. I'm complicit. I should have contributed to change, to changing the system, to changing this Lebanon. It's just time for accountability. It's time for a proper political system I have never seen an explosion like this, and I hope it's the trigger. I'm not sure it is. I'm amazed by the silence of the Lebanese, of accepting anything, accepting militias, accepting corruption, 
accepting poverty, accepting everything. I'm angry. I'm, I'm exhausted with Lebanon. But I know it's not a total breakup. I'll do anything in my capacity to start this chain of change. Time to change this. We should learn from our mistakes. Thank you, Rima. And, and thank you all for sharing your stories. Moving from reading the headlines about the size of an explosion to getting a sense of the lives that are impacted and the impact of that on their lives is really important. And a number of themes that have emerged here, two, two themes that all of you have mentioned are complicity, where you, you're living in your bubble and you've got your life is working. I think Shada, you talked about parallel lives. You're, you're building a successful business. Stefan Schmidt-Heine, who's been very active in Central America and, and throughout Latin America once said, you cannot have a successful business in a failed society. And yet, this is our sense. We think of our tribe and gathering our people together, taking care of our own and being silent on these other matters. So how do you move from complicity to actively engaging yourself and others in a system that seems so overwhelmingly hard to fix? And Shadi, maybe I'll direct that first to you. This, this really triggered in me a realization. I wasn't conscious that I wasn't doing my share. I really thought I was giving to Lebanon. I really thought to the bottom of my core that I was really active in Lebanese society, that I was really doing my share. And what this made me realize is that the government, it's the underlying identity of your country. It represents your interests. It represents so many things and not just yours, but the interests of so many of your fellow people. And you cannot have a successful life and you cannot be a successful leader if you don't act and hold it accountable. That's the first thing. But to answer your question of how do you go from the silence to breaking that silence, I think underlying resilience is not that we wanted to live in a cocoon. I think there's also the fact that you can't stand pain anymore. But the reality is like when you make friends with fear, you actually make friends with pain and pain if you look at it, scars and pain are a way to let light in. And if you're able to actually feel it and let yourself feel it, and I have to say, now we have absolutely no choice. I think every single one of us on this panel feels it every single minute of the day. It makes you break the silence. I know that for sure I will not be silent again and I will not accept what happened. And if it means that I cannot make any change and hold my government accountable, then I will leave. I cannot be an authentic leader living in a country where it, my government is behaving the way it is. I, I cannot. Each of you, and you won't say this yourselves, but I'll say it for you, are doing an amazing amount of things already. And yet I hear a consistent theme that it's not enough, which implies you may have to give some other things up or change trajectory to, if it's, if it's about politics, does that mean you go into politics and give up other things? How, how do you actually move from an aspiration to actually thinking about moving out of this state of silence and complicity? Because I lost my father at such a young age for Lebanon. For he used to think that Lebanon comes first, then the family. I was keen on not joining any political party, but I was keen on being involved in my society and change. And media for me was the place. I, I still push forward for certain things. I still push forward throughout the job that I do for a country that's run by a state. But I must say that what struck me most is that we've gotten to a point that the whole system is so corrupt 
and it's a failed state, and it's time for change on a larger scale. The issue of Lebanon and the problem of Lebanon is Hezbollah as a militia and other militias in Lebanon, but it's also the political system that needs some work. I don't think I have all the answers, but I definitely part of this change during, throughout my job and throughout any communication and work that I do with fellows like you or people on the ground, because you can always send food and rebuild homes and help students study, but building a society and building a political system, rebuilding it and reestablishing the Taif agreement, I think has failed. And it's time for real change on all levels in Lebanon. And it's us. It's not people who, who don't know how to do this. It's us. Look, I think the equation for change is a rather simple one, although its application is always more difficult. For change to happen, three things must exist. There needs to be an acuteness of pain. There needs to be a sense of a solution and a starting point. The easiest thing in the world is to talk about change, but if you don't have these three conditions in confluence, change ain't going to happen. And so if we can leverage each other and leverage the communities at large into crystallizing these three things, then I think we've got something to work with. We've got the, the ingredients to make it happen. And it's, it's important to not lose sight of a very simple condition for stability. People tend to not change this condition if they have it. And I mentioned it at the, at the outset. Food in the belly, roof over the head, and a sense of economic prosperity. I have a job, my kid will have a job, they'll be educated, they'll get a job. You remove any one of these factors and you become hobbled. You become dependent on someone for something. And the country historically has been hijacked by systemic and continued removal of one of these ingredients. And so I wouldn't call it silence. People are unable to see beyond the immediacy of their predicament if one of these elements is gone. We've been magnophones for other people's agendas. And so the social contract requires us first and foremost to change the conditions that allow these three criteria to be there. When that's there, then I think we can move towards a, a better outcome. Ramas, if it's about food, clothing, shelter, meaningful work, that doesn't that drive us back into what Shadia was saying? Let me build my business and we'll just kind of, if I'm doing my part, then the government isn't really a factor. And I think what part of Shadia has realized is you can't just do that part. It's not enough if you're not addressing the whole. And yet not all of us have the capability to address the whole. So how then are we to lead? I strongly believe that it's not enough, unfortunately. It will strengthen people and will give them maybe more comfort to be able to vote freely, to take decisions that might be more free. But the government just has all the levers of power. They control everything. They have all the strength. They have weapons. They have a way to keep us all in fear and quiet. And so I think that it's very difficult to do it alone on a national level. It has to come from the people, but we need help. And this is where I say international collaboration, not to take control of our own country, but to help. I don't see how we're going to get out of this, us Lebanese, alone. And I think at one point, 
you have to be strong enough to ask for it. Talking about uh, the social contract and engagement in politics is one thing when you're sitting in the United States or in Switzerland where I lived or in France where I'll be spending more and more time. And it's something in a country like Lebanon where we've seen, you know, numerous political assassinations. We should remember that after the prime minister was assassinated, it was an assassination. <laughs> we had uh, some 32 or around that number political assassination. Now, I know personally a number of people who were educated uh, you know, in great universities around the world, young, who could have worked anywhere, and who came back, who came back because they believe in rewriting the social contract. They believe in, in all the things we believe in at the Aspen Institute and, and, and in our discussions, you know, and they were killed. You know, a car bomb here, uh, an assassination there. We should not forget that. So being a young politician today and looking back and saying, you need to basically be ready to die. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be the case, but anyone who wants to wear the white hat needs to be ready to die. Now, this is where I joined Shadia. It shouldn't be the case. And this is where we need help because of vested interest and because, you know, you can lose your life if you get engaged politically. I want to add, say, Briefly to what Walid and Sadia said, it's not only about assassinations. I covered also the protests in Lebanon, the uprising like this last October. Even if you go to protests on the streets, it takes 10 or 15 people who are armed or with batons who are driven by a party that's capable of destabilizing the country. So this is not political assassinations. This is basic human need to just protest on the streets. Even this has become dangerous in Lebanon. So our, our Q&A forum is, is lighting up. And so I want to just read some of these questions. These are great questions for the participants. But let me just frame, frame them so that we can acknowledge the, these questions. And if you're moved to respond, you can. Walid asks, how do you deal with incumbent leaders that have all the levers of power and will not let go? To those leaders, the social contract is irrelevant. And I want to, there's one other that I'd love to read from Marla. She says, thank you for sharing your story, including your life experiences. When you look at the world today, when do you know it's time to leave versus when the fighting resistance is the right approach? So let me throw in one more. Aaron asks, and I think this is incredibly important in light of the tone of a lot of this discussion, how would you verbalize your hopes for Lebanon? What needs to change in Lebanon? My hope is this isn't just about Lebanon. Every leader in every country right now, I think is facing a similar set of choices. Are you doing just your little bit in your little bubble, making a difference in a small way? And is that, that's good, it's necessary, but is it sufficient? So Reem, I'm gonna put you on the spot first. Just in a minute or so, reflections from what you've heard, reflections from these questions and messages you'd like to impart. Quickly, I'd say, first of all, the movement on the streets needs to continue irrelevant of the threats that people get and it needs to come up with leadership that's not on anybody's payroll and come up with solutions. But I, I also think that it's time to put a stop to the sectarian system in Lebanon. I need to see an effective leadership, a leader that makes things happen for Lebanon. Hezbollah is a different story that definitely, no militia should be in Lebanon anyway, regardless of uh, their cause. So. First of all, the street, and then 
time for sectarianism to just uh, be put on hold and a new political system should be placed in Lebanon. Walid. The question on when do you decide to leave or, you know, what do you make out of your decision? Frankly, I, I, you know, there are some 14 million Lebanese all around the world and uh, four or six, depending on the statistics here. I don't make it a big deal, frankly, where I am. At the end of the day, Lebanon is in your heart or is, is, isn't, right? Today, we realize working on, on the ground that, uh, you know, without the Lebanese diaspora, we would have been in serious trouble, you know. Of course, there are countries uh, willing to donate, but they always tie their donations to political agendas, which is understandable. But the Lebanese diaspora in weeks and in months proved that they're here. So this guilt that we have, that my parents have, that I may be having, for me, this problem is solved. You decide, as Shadia said, you decide to leave when you don't feel your presence here is adding any value uh, beyond your business, of course. If you have a family business, you have to do it, fine. But if you don't feel that your presence is actually moving the needle in the right direction, then you, can, you might as well help Lebanon from wherever you are in the world. And this is what actually is happening. You know, the diaspora can actually change things at a political level, geopolitical level, much more than the people who are living in denial in the country because they love it so much. Ramiz, closing thoughts? I'm not clairvoyant, and I have no idea what the final answer will be for Lebanon. But I do know this. We've not properly engaged in economic solutions with the international community for Lebanon. We have explored and debated and pontificated political analysis, advantage, disadvantage, forever and ever, and then some and look at where it's gotten us. I'm tired of the political politicization. We need to do this government, blah, blah. Government is gonna have to kind of find its way. And I'm sure there are many fellows who are very inclined towards political discourse and power to them. Let them engage and let those qualified to engage in that chess game do their best. I'm very inclined towards an economic solution, and I am compelled by the belief that if you put food in the belly, a roof over the head, and a sense of economic viability for an individual, you have the foundations to discuss and engage and progress. And I know that the business community can engage. We can build small and medium enterprises and, and make them big enterprises and not just play in a local economy, but in a global economy. And if for a split second, if you apply a digital lens on this, you'll find that as a region, and Lebanon as a part of this region, is abysmally small in terms of engaging the global marketplace. There is value there. We can bring strength and prosperity for the country. Though we have 80 billion in debt, in the great scheme of things, 80 billion is not the end of the world. We don't have the worst debt to GDP ratio. There are others worse than us. We can make a difference. And Sharia, last word to you. So uh, I was thinking of all these questions. I think, where do you start? You start with yourself. There is a quote uh, from Rumi that I love, and it says, stop acting so small. You are the universe in ecstatic motion. And I think it speaks very much to me. 
all the time and I think it speaks to my leadership uh, in the last uh, 20 to 30 years in this country. I think there are social contracts all over the world. They're well written, well drafted, they look beautiful on paper, they are being very poorly enforced by the leaders in place and by the participants in place and the citizens in place. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we holding these leaders accountable? Are we playing our role in this social contract? And I think if we answer honestly, many of us will probably find that we, we should answer no if we are being authentic and sincere. And then also, how does resilience play a role in making us comfortably numb and in accepting what is unjust and all the wrongdoings of our leader? I think if we ask ourselves that question, it's a very important one to ask ourselves. And finally, to answer one last uh, uh, comment about when I think it's time to leave. I think it's time to leave when you cannot be proud of your leadership in your country, when you cannot say that your leadership is an enlightened one and it's not an authentic one. Uh, there are a lot of people who practice sofa revolution here in Lebanon where we watch on TV while the people fight in the streets. And I think these kinds of practices our practices, if we look at them, they're not particularly enlightened, I think. So for me, it would be time to leave when I no longer can think that my leadership is enlightened or that my leadership is authentic for my own country. Shadia and Ramez and Walid and Rima, thank you for sharing your insights, your life stories, experiences, and the sense of hope with us. That's it for this episode of The Value of Leadership. The Value of Leadership is a podcast from the Aspen Institute's Aspen Global Leadership Network, AGLN. AGLN's mission is to develop authentic, high-integrity leaders, people who are committed to proactively confronting societal challenges, individually and collectively, in order to create a more just, free, and equitable society. And fellows are putting their values to work all across the globe. To learn more about the network and the work of our fellows, visit agln.aspeninstitute.org. Thanks to everyone who made this episode possible. Phil Havayana, Colby Hartberg, and Samantha Cherry. And thank you for listening.